Hopefully you've got your Bibles. If you don't, please find one in front of you. If, if, if you're not able to follow along with Scripture, you're going to miss a whole lot because it's, it's not about the preacher. It's about the Word of God and what He's got for us. So uh, hopefully you'll be able to f- follow along in Philippians chapter 2. There was a newspaper reporter that was doing some research on mental illness, trying to figure out how he could write about it and convey the, the message and such as that. So he went to a facility that helps treat mental illness, and he met with the director, and he asked the director, he said, uh, how do you know when somebody that you're talking to needs to stay here for some help? He said, well, we have a bathtub test. A bathtub test? Yeah, we, we bring them into a room with a bathtub, and we ask them to fill the bathtub with water, and we give them a bucket, and we give them a cup, and we give them a spoon. Report said, oh. And, and the guy said, well, we ask them to empty the bathtub. He said, okay. I got it. A normal person would use the bucket, correct? No, a normal person would just unplug it and let the water flow out. We have a room down the hall for you if you'd like to help us to show you the way, <laughs> okay? No matter who we are, we often have a mind that gets confused and a mind that can't really figure out the things that are even right in front of us. Um, we want to continue to study about the message of Philippians chapter 1 and chapter 2. We're going to be looking at chapter 2 today. It's, it's really been important and moved my life to see how the Spirit of God is moving. So I, we, we looked at Philippians chapter 1 last time. I shared with you that probably the key verse of the whole entire letter that Paul wrote to the uh, church at Philippi was for, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, Philippians 1, 21. Remember what verse Dean used last week when he was talking about what he's faced with all his cancer and all the struggles and what's really impacted him? Philippians 1, 21, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And how do we live for Christ? We live for Christ by having the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. We studied that last time. We used that as the kickoff verse, and we're going to continue to focus on that today. But if we want to really live for Christ, we need to think like Christ. We need to understand like Christ. And we need to demonstrate that in our actions and in our thoughts. I'm not going to go back through chapter 1 and do a big review, but I would if you've got your got a Bible, like to just point out some things to show you that he, he was talking about how we think. He was talking about the mind. In verse 1, uh, verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, uh, every time I remember you, remember, that's, that's thinking, that's using the mind. In verse 6, he talks about being confident. Confidence comes from how we think and how we accumulate facts. In verse 7, King James says, how I think. In verse 9 of chapter 1, he talks about having knowledge and depth of insight. Again, it points us back to the mind. Verse 10 of chapter 1, having the ability to discern, to choose between good and bad, right and wrong. Verse 12, to know. Verse 19, Paul says, I know. Verse 20, he says, to expect and to hope. In verse 22, he talks about choosing And in verse 27, he talks about having one mind. Paul is focused on helping these Philippians, this church, understand how to think. And he wants them to think by having the mind of Christ that we see in chapter 2. 
verse 5. So we're going to go through chapter 2 today, hopefully, uh, get through most of it anyway, focusing on how we can have the mind of Christ. Obviously, the only people that can have the mind of Christ that are with us today are those that have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So mainly I'm talking to you if you're a believer, but there's going to be a really important section in here if you've never come to know Jesus Christ that presents him just the way the song presented him. And we'll, we'll talk through that as we get there. The first thing that stood out to me in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the mind of Christ is a mind that is self-aware. I'll try to explain that. Let's read those verses. Chapter 2, Philippians, verse 1 through 5. I will refer back to King James a lot, but I'm reading from the NIV right now. If, any of you ha- if, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only on your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Or let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ is a mind that is self-aware. That sounds like a contradiction, to have the mind of Christ and yet to be focused on ourselves. But let me give you a definition of self-awareness. It means having the ability to focus on how you think, act, and feel as compared to your internal standards. Let me say that again. It means having the ability to focus on how your thoughts, actions, and emotions do or do not line up with your internal standards. To be self-aware is that when we get up each day, we are thinking about what we need to do and how we need to act and how we need to think. To be self-aware for a believer is to focus on the standards of our faith, the things that we have been taught, the things we've been taught how to act and live and think. It's being aware, are we doing that? Are we not doing that? That's what it means to be self-aware. I was first introduced to this concept of self-awareness about a week after I reported to work in Wilson 29 years ago. We had been through some training sessions. BB&T, now known as that really strange, interesting name of Truist Bank. Uh, Back then, BB&T had 10 core values that they wanted us to learn and act on and understand. All the training sessions put before us those 10 values that they wanted us to understand. Um, reality, we, just, we, we deal with facts, not feelings. That was, that was the concept. Um, to reason, to be able to think through and figure things out. Independent thinking, that's the one that I never saw allowed in practice, but they claimed it was a value of ours to think independently and not necessarily agree with what the folks in Winston wanted us. But anyway, independent thinking, one of the values. Productivity, to make sure we're doing real work. We're putting in the time and we're doing real work. We're doing it with integrity. We're doing it as a team. And we're doing it in a just or a fair manner. Those were the value systems. 
So I, I got that. I had that. Well, a week after I'd been here, my boss calls me in and says, Chuck, all of our managers have to attend the FAR Institute. I said, I don't know what the FAR Institute is. It's actually in High Point. I said, I just moved from there. But anyway, um, he said, D Dr. Farr created this whole week's course on how to be self-aware, how to make sure that we're applying the value system to our day-to-day -day life as we treat customers, as we treat our employees, etc. He says, now, it's a very worldly concept. Dr. Farr, um, he he's kind of out there. It's very intense. They will try to break down your value system. They'll try to break down your faith. My, my boss was a believer, by the way. He said, but you got to do it. I said, can't you give me a year or so to get acclimated? No, Chuck, you got to go to this class. In fact, you're going next week. He said, he could see my concerns. I don't do this psychobabble stuff. I'm not good at that. But I was going to have to go to that class. He said, Chuck, nobody's died from it. You'll survive. <laughs> and oh, by the way, just so you keep your head on straight, the doctor who created self-awareness has been married six times. <laughs> that gives you a lot of confidence going into a class, right? This guy who can't figure out marriage is going to tell me how to make, be self-aware. But that was a worldly concept of self-awareness, but it raised it in my mind of how to be self-aware. Paul's writing how to be self-aware as a believer. And I think he's, he points it out here very much so in, in chapter 2, verse 1. There are four if-any statements. If you read through there, you say, if any, if you have any encouragement, if any comfort, if any fellowship, if any tenderness. There's four statements that he points out that he wants them to understand. Both interpretations, King James and NIV, start out with if. If sometimes can be one of those words that you're not sure what it, is it yes or no? or may, That's not what he's saying here. He's, he's basically saying since or in view of the fact that this exists, this is what you need to know. So let's look at these four statements, and, and we'll, I'll key them off of in view of the fact. The first one, in view of the fact that we have encouragement from being united with Christ. King James says, if there's any consolation, it's a consolation, encouragement. He's saying this is one of the value systems. If you have encouragement, in view of the fact that you do have encouragement from Jesus Christ. He wanted them to think about all the times that Christ had encouraged them, all the times that he had helped them see the way, all the times that they had gotten encouragement to move forward in whatever they were facing. Do you and I think about that often? Do you think about how the Lord encourages you as a believer on a daily basis? Most of us can look back at real struggle times in our lives and we can see how the Lord was there. And how he encourages us just, just to come on, push through, give me your burdens, I'll be there for you. He encouraged them. This is one of the values. If any, in view of the fact that you have encouragement from being united with Christ. And the second one, in view of the fact that you have comfort from his love. He challenges their mind to reflect on the love of God for you in your life. The love of God that he reached out and he spoke to you and he saved you. The love of God that he's walked you through your life. The love of God that he's given you maybe a family, maybe kids, maybe a job. Maybe he's helped you through times when you didn't have a family, you didn't have a job. In view of the fact that we have comfort from his love, he wants them to think on that and reflect on that. 
Hopefully we do that on a daily basis to reflect on the comfort of the love of Jesus Christ. The third one, in view of the fact that you have fellowship with the Spirit. Paul's saying, the Spirit of God has moved in you. It, it, it has developed you as a church. The Spirit of God protected a jailer before he even knew Christ, back when he was afraid that all the, the, the criminals were going to escape, including Paul and Silas. He's pointing them back. Look at how the Spirit of God has moved in your life. Do you and I take time to think about every day, every single moment of every day, if we're a believer, the Spirit of God is moving in our hearts and in our lives to show us the way? The Spirit of God brings us together and unites us as a body here at a local church, and it's there to encourage us and to guide us and to direct us. In view of the fact that we have communion, our fellowship. Chapter 1, he called it partnership with one another. How many times do you, you get a card in the mail from somebody here trying to help you through your struggles? A phone call, somebody reaching out to you, a message, a word, where the Spirit of God communes with us and encourages us and helps us to understand. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit we're all baptized into the body, whether Jew or Gentile, bond or free, made to drink in one Spirit. We have this unity of the Spirit. And then the last one, in view of the fact that there is compassion, that there is tenderness. Our Lord is a compassionate and a tender Savior. He knows our very hearts. He knows when we hurt. He knows when we struggle. He knows when we rejoice. He knows when we're happy. He knows when we're sad. And he, he shares his tenderness and his compassion. You see it all through the Gospels, touching people's lives, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. He's a God of tenderness and compassion. So Paul's pointing out to have the mind of Christ is to have a mind that is self-aware of the consolation, of the comfort of his love, of the communion of his spirit, and then of the compassion, of the tenderness and compassion. And then he does something. He says, okay, I want you to be aware of this. These are values you need to have every day. And then he says, I want you to show them. I want you to demonstrate them. Look at verse 2. He says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Isn't that saying, encourage me. Reach out to me and encourage me. Show your consolation and your encouragement to me. And then he says, having the same love. He just talked about the comfort of love that you have. Show it to me and show it to others. And then he talks about being one in the spirit. If you've got the spirit in you, show that, demonstrate that spirit in the way you reach out to others. And then do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain purpose or vain conceit, but in humility considers others better than yourselves. Each should look not only on your own selves, but also to the interest of others. That, that's tenderness and compassion, isn't it? Paul's saying, if you've got the mind of Christ, you'll be aware of your value system, and you'll demonstrate that value system to those around you, to those you come in contact with. It's a great time to think about that. What, what are our values each day we get up? What are our plans? 
We need to be aware that we need to have the mind of Christ and do what he wants us to do and have his plans and carry out these values. So the mind of Christ, not how Dr. Farr saw it, <laughs> that's not self-awareness, it's spiritual self-awareness. Secondly, we have to have the mind of Christ is to have a mind that submits, a mind that submits. This is a great gospel message here in the rest of chapter 2, for verses 5 through 11. So again, if you're out there on Facebook, if you're here, and you've never made a decision to accept Jesus Christ, let me present him to you. Let, let's see what Paul has to show to look on Jesus Christ, to understand who he is and understand what he's done for you and for me. Reading uh, verse 5 for 11 through 11, he says again, your attitude or your, let your mind be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. As soon as he says, let this mind be in you, he shows us the mind of Jesus Christ. And he says, that's the mind you need to have. The mind of Jesus Christ was a mind that was submissive to the will of the Father. And how did he do that? I see seven steps here. Some people see six. Some people see eight. It doesn't matter. We'll just take you step by step to see what Jesus Christ did. It says, who being in very nature God. Jesus in very nature is God. You go to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you go down to chapter to verse 14. He, the word was made flesh. So it tells us the word was God, and he's the one that was made flesh. Jesus Christ was in the very nature of God. You see, that means his very essence is God. He, he's not inferior. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. In his very nature, the very essence of him, he is God. And what did he do? He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to. He's, I'm God, but I'm not going to hang on to staying here in all this glory when, when I've got stuff that the Father wants me to do. Then it says... He did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. King James says, Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But then we see verse 7, But he made himself nothing, or he made himself no reputation. I thought about this when they had the big coronation of King Charles. You know, he, he, he's made a king, and they do all this hoopla, and they wear all these clothes, and they have parades and soldiers and all this stuff going on. Obviously making himself of great reputation, right? And yet they don't really have a role of doing anything politically. But here Jesus made himself nothing. The God of the universe, the one that spoke this world into existence to do the will of the Father, made himself nothing. 
He made himself of no reputation, no big rival. He, he was born in a stable because there was no room for him in the inn. There was no room for him in the Jewish religion. <laughs> he wasn't a priest there for them. He wasn't a, a servant. He, I mean, he wasn't a Levite. They didn't recognize him as who he claimed to be. He had no reputation. And then verse 7 says, he took on the very nature or the form of a servant. Again, the essence, everything about him, he became a servant. It's interesting to know that Paul records that he was a servant before he was in the likeness of men. He was a servant because he was willing to serve his father. He was willing to be what God the Father wanted him to be, and that was to be the sacrifice. He made himself of no reputation. He took on himself the form of a servant, the very essence of a servant. Isaiah 52, looking forward, says, See, my servant will act wisely. And in Hebrews 10, 7, he says, I have come to do your will. He was willing to be a servant. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, for you and for me, was willing to be a servant. And then we see the next step. He was made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. So God the Father sent God the Son here and he was made in the likeness of men. That took me back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. You remember when man was created? God said, let us, let us, not just let me, let us. The Trinity there, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So Adam was created in the likeness of God. And now here we have Jesus coming in the likeness of man. Why? We see man sinned, and man was no longer perfectly living in the likeness of of God. So Jesus Christ came back to earth to show man what the likeness of God was like. Man was made in the likeness of God, and here God is made in the likeness of men. And he found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. How much more humble could he be than he just was willing to even come? But he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is what Jesus Christ has done for each and every one of us here today. We, our minds can't grasp what it's like to even come close to being the God of heaven, the God of the universe, to come here and look like you and me and then to suffer unfairly and take on all he did at the cross of Christ, of Calvary, all he took on him. What a step, what submission. The mind of Christ is a mind that submits. And then Paul couldn't help but just interject. This is how God sees it, folks. This is how God sees it. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the, sun, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has highly exalted him. He raised him up. He says, your work is well, you're my well-beloved son. You've done everything I wanted you to do. 
Now come back home. Come back home. He exalted him. Isn't that what you and I need to be doing? As we reflect on the mind of Christ and how he was submissive, you and I need to be submissive to the will of God. And a part of that is we need to praise him. That's why we come here every Sunday to remember the Lord, because he asks us to do it. And we want to lift him up and praise him. Let this mind be in you, a mind that submits to the will of the Father. Thirdly, we see that the mind of Christ is a mind that shines. Look at verses 12 through 16. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault and a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. It's a lot packed into these verses. A lot he was trying to point out. Some that at times has been taken, interpreted wrongly and confusing. But he's saying, you know, you've always obeyed. Just keep on obeying. Not only in my presence, but also in my absence. And then he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There are those in this world, there are denominations across this country that believe that we have to work for our salvation. And the harder we work and the better we are, the more good we are, that's how we're hoping somehow that we will be accepted into heaven. That's not what he's saying here. Ephesians chapter... Uh, In chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. Paul's not confusing himself. By grace are you saved through faith, not of works, not of works, not of being good. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then he says, but we are the workmanship of Christ. See, we're saved by faith, but once we're saved, he wants us to work out our salvation. He wants us to do the things he wants us to do. He wants us to have the mind of Christ. He wants us to reach the lost. He wants us to encourage the saints. He wants us to raise our kids to point them to Christ and our grandkids. That's what it means when he's saying, well, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And, and how do we work that out? Look at, look at verse 13. For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So working in our salvation means letting Christ shine through us. The work that he wants us to do, it, it'll be shine through, shining through us, and, and we do it. And then he gives an example that I, the mind of Christ, I said, is one that shines. He says, um, you may be children of God without fault in a crooked, depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. I'm sure all of us at times go out at night and we look up in the sky and we see the stars. See twinkling here and twinkling there. But what do you notice about the stars? Most of them are just kind of out there individually. Now, some of them are more grouped together than others. 
But the main thing that you see when you look out at the stars is you see the darkness. He's telling them you need to shine as stars because you're in a dark and evil and sinful world. But you need to shine. Jesus Christ came and he shined. He showed, Jesus, he showed God to everybody. You need to shine like stars in the universe. Folks, we live in what I believe, at least in my lifetime, is, is the most evil time that we have existed because of the sin and the, the degradation that's going on in the world around us. The political scene is horrible. The progressive movements are horrible. The things they're trying to do to our kids and grandkids is horrible. And they have no conscience, and they band together, and they support stuff that makes no sense. And yet you and I are to shine in that dark, devastated world. And how do we shine? Look at look what it says in verse 16. You hold out the word of life. King James says, King James says, holding forth the word of life. That's how you and I shine. We shine as Christians. We shine to tell others through how we live and how we act and mainly through what we say. We shine to tell others that there is hope in a hopeless world. There's help to those that are helpless. There's light to those that are in darkness. I don't know how I ended up watching it yesterday or got getting to it, but uh, Bernhard Langer is a professional golfer. He's had a great history. Uh, he won the Masters, won a lot of tournaments on the PGA, and now he's on the senior PGA, and he just broke the record for winning the most tournaments once he was classified as a senior. Bernhard Langer was raised in England. He was raised in a religious family. His testimony is, I kept trying to do good. I kept trying to do the best I could because that's what, that's what we're taught is to be good and to do good and to work our way to heaven. And he said, you know, and, and along the way, I, I got good at golf, and so I got good enough to, to play on the PGA Tour, and so I came to America, brought my wife with me. I was winning tournaments. We had money. Everything was grand, and I had this vast emptiness in my life. And I couldn't figure it out. I mean, I was doing as good as I could. I was working as hard as I could. But I was empty. And I had a void in my life. And somebody invited me, one of the pros on the tour invited me to a, a, a Bible study with the other, some of the other golfers. And I figured I needed a Bible to go to a Bible study, but I didn't have one. So I went anyway. And I heard about stuff I'd never heard of before. They talked about coming to know Jesus as a personal Savior. They talked about studying his word to find out how I need to live my life. They even said that you can't be good enough to get to heaven on your own. Nobody's good enough. He said, so a few more weeks of Bible study. I went and bought my own Bible and I started reading it and studying. He said, I came to realize I needed Jesus Christ to fill that void. And so he got saved. What a great testimony. What a great, great message. That's what it's like to be saved out of darkness and out of despair. Bernhard Langer is a shining light. He tells his testimony wherever he goes, and he lives it out on the golf course. You and I need to be, have a mind of Christ that's a mind that shines.
Lastly, and we won't go through all reading this, but the last uh, verses 19 through the end of the chapter, a mind of Christ is a mind that serves. Paul points, first of all, to himself in several of these verses, talking about the service that he's done for Jesus Christ. He mightily served Christ, and he was abused for it. He was beaten for it. Joe was reading on Wednesday night through all the stuff that he went through. I mean, it's amazing. And yet he sits here talking about rejoicing and being glad in his service for Jesus Christ. Paul had a mind of Christ and that he served the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he points to Timothy. He says, you know, Timothy's a servant. I brought him along. I shared with him what I know. I've sent him out to you. He's been a part of coming to you. I'm going to try to get him to you again. Timothy, he was a servant in a different capacity than Paul was. I don't think Timothy really suffered the way that Paul did. But he was a servant. And he points out to Epaphroditus, another. He, he was a part of the Philippian church that had come to bring uh, a gift of money. And he'd gotten sick. And sick unto death. And Paul pleaded with the Lord, don't, don't take him. I can't, I can't deal with that right now. And so Epaphroditus was healed. Um, and, and he was so concerned about what the Philippians were worried about, about him being sick. But he is another one that was a servant. The mind of Christ is a mind that serves. And that's what these three men were doing. Do you and I have the mind of Christ? If we're believers, Paul told the church at Corinth, you have the mind of Christ. And he was talking to a church that was so worldly. They weren't using the mind of Christ the way they should have. He was having to point out what they were doing wrong. And he, he filled up, what, 13, 16 chapters of telling them what they were doing wrong. But he said, you do have the mind of Christ. And to the church at Philippi, he says, let this mind be in you. Take action. Use the mind of Christ on a daily basis. As we think about having the mind of Christ, let's be self-aware. Let's know that we're living out our value system. Let's also be submissive to the will of the Father. You just have to study his word and he'll show, show you what the will of God is. Let's be submissive. A, a mind that shines... We are shining lights in the midst of vast darkness. And he's placed you and me exactly where he wants us. And he wants us to shine for the people he brings across our path. And then finally, the mind of Christ is a mind that serves. Are you and I willing to serve him where he's placed us? Are you and I serving him here in this local body? Are we serving him out in the community? Are we serving him in the workplace? Are we serving him in our families? The mind of Christ is a mind that serves. May it be so. Hopefully we'll take encouragement from here. And we will have the mind of Christ as we move forward this week. Our Father, we give you praise and thanks for your word, for the power of your word. Lord, we thank you for Paul and his willingness to just be so steadfast in sharing your word, in speaking your word, in writing down your word so that we have it today. And Father, for believers today, I just pray you'll help us to desire to have the mind of Christ and be aware of what that means. And Lord, for any that are listening without Christ, we pray that today will be a day of salvation. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.